You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It has been a uh, apparently a brief, long period of time since the last episode. Maybe like three or four weeks at least. I don't know. Um, I have been knee-deep in wrapping up the Greatest Peak series. The final player profile in that series will run a couple days after this podcast airs. So... The plan is to start to podcast a little bit more regularly and ramp up on more topical current stuff during the season. Today's show is actually something a little different. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to speak with Evan Wash from the NBA at the Ideas Analytics Conference last week. And so for today's episode, we are going to listen to that conversation. It runs about 45 minutes. And we got into some really interesting areas that he oversees. We'll talk about uh, sort of game state, like foul fouling and uh, replay issues and the flow of the game and how fans respond to those things. Um, uh, you know, a lot of insight into sort of thinking about the product in general, the, the length of the season and in-season tournaments and playoff formats and things like that. So if that sounds interesting, that is Today's episode, conversation from the Ideas Conference with Evan Wash. Without further ado, let's just jump right in. I thought before we kind of dive into the juicier topics, we could start with just kind of background, like tell everyone a little bit about what your role is uh, right now with the league, how long you've been there and sort of the, the team that you oversee. Sure. So uh, I've been with the league about 10 years, uh, actually, which seems to have flown by. Uh, and I head up a, a department called Basketball Strategy and Analytics. And basically, we're responsible for overseeing all data, strategy, and technology as it relates to the on-court product, so the, the, NBA, the NBA game of basketball. Uh, and so in that, in that role, we're focused on everything from referee performance to the integrity of the competition, um, maximizing player health and reducing injuries, uh, and looking at how to maximize fan engagement with the rules of the game, the structure of the season, uh, and just trying to leverage, you know, data analytics and, and technology wherever we can to do that. Um, so I've got a, a fairly large group that has a cross-section of data scientists, strategists, basketball experts, some economists, um, some programs, some like sort of, you know, more developer types, uh, really a diverse group of folks who just come at this from a lot of different perspectives thinking about the game of basketball. And, and how big is that team today? Uh, we are about 30. And, and 10 years ago when you got there, how big was it? So I actually started my career at the NBA on, on the business side of the league. Uh, my, my first job at the league was, uh, was redesigning the revenue sharing plan right as the 2011 lockout got underway. Uh, so if you, if you want to trial by fire at, at a sports league, definitely, definitely try to figure out a plan for 30 billionaires to share their money. Uh, that was a challenge. Um, but, but over time, what evolved was this idea that there are a lot of different people thinking about 
the game strategically, analytically, quantitatively in different areas of the league office. So there was, I think you're right, there was like very small group that was specifically focused on this, but others who were peripherally doing work around, let's say the referee side or the fan engagement side. And so what we did about six years ago uh, was just bring all that together in a centralized fashion to try to bring some synergy to the way we were all attacking similar problems within the league office. So it's, it's definitely grown, but maybe not as much as the numbers would suggest because it was more of a reorganization. So let's just jump right in on referees because I feel like when I mentioned to people this week that I was going to be having this conversation with you, that was the number one thing that kept coming up. I, I thought maybe we could start with walking through an example where your team uses data and kind of goes through the process of actually leading to something that ultimately becomes a rule change. Uh, are, you, are you focused on the, the actual refereeing side or, or more a, a basketball rule change? I think, the, I think let's start with the rule side. That's certainly the one that I think fans are uh, primarily interested in. You know, when you actually get to a point where, you know, you're going to make a change on the court in the product, um, what's the process behind that? What goes into that? Yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't necessarily... Um, manifest itself as narrow as, as let's say, a, a rule change to, to basketball. But I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So the simplest one is, you know, intentional fouling, right? That that we had this hack-a-shack problem a number of years ago. And in addition to just being sort of aesthetically ugly, what you can see when you look at, uh, let's say, the minute-by-minute viewership of any game, tracking, you know, Nielsen ratings and things, is you can actually see people tuning out when teams resort to that strategy, right? And so we were able to make not just a basketball case, but a business case that this is this is a negative uh, from a perception standpoint for our game. And so we ultimately, you know, changed a rule there based on that fan engagement data to essentially eradicate uh, intentional fouling, at least in the last two minutes of quarters. It's of course, stopped more generally across the game now for, for various other strategic reasons, but that was one. Um, you know, sort of more macro thing that, that we look at that, I don't know if it falls in your category of rule change, but I, I always find interesting is we developed a, a metric internally uh, that we call the basketball quality score. And it's trying to bring together uh, all elements of gameplay to understand, you know, what's happening on the court. So that could be the competitiveness of the games, average score margin throughout. It could be the sloppiness, right? Non-steal turnovers. It could be how well defenses are contesting shots, star minutes, kind of bucketing all that into like, how, what was the quality of any individual game and something we saw, which probably isn't surprising to a lot of fans, is that metric, the average for that metric actually decreases over the course of a season and specifically kind of craters towards the end of a season when teams are more solidified into either playoff or non-playoff positions. Those that are out of the playoffs maybe had incentive uh, to, to drop even further for draft purposes, of course, and, and teams in the playoffs maybe had incentive to scale back their, uh, their star minutes to prepare for the playoffs. And so we used that data to make two fairly fundamental changes to the league. One was the the draft lottery changes a number of years ago uh, to try to reduce that incentive to race to the bottom. And the other you're you're seeing now, it started off last season and growing this season with the play-in tournament because the idea that if you can create more tiers in the standing, so it's not just top eight, bottom seven in a conference, that there's a reason to reach the top six to lock in a playoff spot. There's a reason to get to the seven to 10 range to be in the play-in and bring more teams into the fold. We actually anticipate we're going to see a higher level of competition in the latter part of the year, which again would drive up that, that quality metric that we track. So there's a lot of different sort of micro and macro examples of where we're using data to to try to shape the product. So let me piggyback off that because this is something I've thought about for years in terms of game design, where 
in game design, there's this balancing principle of skill versus luck, right? Like a game like chess is mostly skill, basically. And so your variance is not going to be extreme from player to player, whereas uh, the card game of war is just all luck. Um, if you think about something in terms of basketball structure, uh, the March Madness tournament is a single elimination tournament. So you're introducing more variability by having a smaller sample size. So you increase excitement typically in that case, right? But you sacrifice that maybe for skill where you don't always have your one seeds or your best teams in the final four. Um, how do you guys think about that or approach that when it comes to something like making a decision change for say the play-in tournament or um, I guess it was before your time, but length of playoff rounds right from three to five or the length of the schedule in the season even? Yeah, you should talk to some professional war players. They might argue that uh, there's, there's more skill in that. It's a mind game. Is, um, is that a thing? I would I would guess Seth would know, but my, if I had to bet, I would. <laughs> um, as a as a former poker player myself, people will uh, people will call themselves professional in anything. Um, so it, it's a great point. We, basketball is a very unique sport, especially the way we've structured it. Um, the the things that tend to lead to uh, variability in out or less variability in outcomes are um, more scoring opportunities within it within a game right um, more games and more games in a playoff series and we have the most of all of those things right that there are 80 something uh, sh shots per game per team right so 100, 100 possessions roughly um, there are very small variances in, in each team's uh, scoring probability on any given possession. But when you play that out over those hundred possessions and over those 82 games, you get a very clear picture of the, the actual skill level of those teams, right? Versus an NFL season where there's far fewer possessions, so far fewer sc scoring opportunities and 20% of the games, only 16 games. And so you get a lot more randomness in, in team record, right? As reflective of, of overall team skill. And so you know, there's a bunch of studies that have been done that you could basically play an NBA season over 25, 30 games and get to roughly the same assessment of the good teams and the bad teams. Um, and so, so that's just a, a sort of open item for us is, well, do we want to have all of these games to get to the point where we can, with real precision and refinement, know who are the best teams and, and who are the worst teams? And how does that balance with the entertainment quality of those games and, you know, the need to fill RSN contracts, the need to fill arenas and, and provide, you know, opportunities for season ticket holders and such to, to attend games. So that's, that's a tension that's always existed. And we're studying that, you know, continually uh, over time. The, the, the playoff length then is, a, is another issue because in a seven game series, right. Team small differences in teams are going to play themselves out much more than they would in a knockout. And that cuts both ways too, because on the one hand, you'd like to introduce more randomness and excitement to our playoffs. But on the other hand, our fans really want to see our best teams go head to head in the later, later rounds of the playoffs. So I'm not sure that our product would necessarily by, be served by having, you know, more seven and eight seeds upsetting our, our top teams, because we are a fairly star driven league. People want to see our star players play in the conference finals and finals. So that's a tension there as well. We think the play-in is actually a really nice blend of the two, because it's basically saying that the teams that have earned their way into a definitive playoff spot, the top six teams in each conference, they're going to get the benefit of the seven game series teams, seven through 10, they're going to have single game knockouts, right? Seven's going to play eight this year. The winner's going to get the seven seed. Nine's going to play 10, the, the loser's out. And then the loser of the seven, eight versus the winner of the nine, 10 will get the eight seed. And so you'll get these sort of high intensity knockout games that 
we only get in a game seven context and those are variable. We don't, we only have so many game sevens each year. So to create that tiering where there's sort of locked in teams, the, the knockout teams, and then the, the lottery teams we think is a nice way to bring a little bit more of that randomness into the fold. And, and just uh, one more thing about everything you just said in there, the schedule length, obviously that's a topic of conversation for so many people. And, and one of the things that, Again, I had a lot of people inundating me with questions about schedule length. We're at 72 this year. Obviously, we've had some variability because of you know craziness in the world. Um, I guess if if you can't separate the business considerations from those, right? I think that's probably the sweet spot your your team and the league are trying to always hit. Mm-hmm. Um, what seems like possibilities based on data you're seeing? Are you guys waiting to see the reaction to this season? Talk just a little bit more about any possibility for changing schedule and how that would work. Yeah, it's, honestly, it, it, it's a balance of that economic and basketball tension, right? I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that if you had fewer games, that two things happen. One, each game means more competitively by definition, right? Each game has more marginal impact on a team's playoff qualification chances. And therefore, you'd also expect a higher overall quality of play in those games for, for any number of reasons, either because the games mean more that, you know, teams are going to have to go all out in them that if you use the same calendar footprint, that fewer games would mean less density, fewer back-to-backs. And if we did that, presumably more star player participation, right? So you would expect um, the, the sort of average quality of, you know, likability of any individual game to go up. However, it's not clear that that likability is going to translate into the incremental revenue that you would need to justify cutting out all those mm-hmm. games from a, a ticketing standpoint, from a you know RSN uh, value standpoint, and so that's the tension that we're studying. And obviously, this year we used it as a bit of a, a bit of an innovative year, but also a, a transitional year to try to get back on track to our normal calendar for the 21-22 season. And so the reason we felt we needed to finish by that mid mid late July timeframe was twofold. One, we want to avoid competition with the Olympics, right? Which start July 23rd and try to get back on track to that mid to late October start for 21, 22. And we, we calculated that we could only fit in 72 games without really going too far on the density and back-to-back point. So that's how we ended up at 72 for this year. But yeah, we'll be studying the data and look at sort of how fans react to any individual game. And if there's a case that the, the average engagement and interest in any game does move up commensurately with the reduction in games, then you can make a business case to do that. But that, that's a tough equation, right? So like, as an example, if you cut 20% of games out, you'd have to believe that there's 25% more interest in any given game in order to get back to that same, you know, and that would have to translate to ticket prices, to TV contracts, et cetera, just to get back to that same level of, of revenue. And so the only other thing we think of then is, okay, well, what if you cut the number of games and then you use the space in the calendar that that creates to add new tent poles, right? Add new tournaments like a, a secondary cup and in-season tournament. Use that to create a larger play-in tournament because you've got the space in the calendar. And if those types of things can recoup the value that you might lose from the fewer regular season games, now you might have more of a business case to do that. So it's not just about regular season games for us. It's very much about competitive meaning and, and fan interest throughout the year. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that sometimes is very subtle where the amount of revenue you necessarily need to make up to, to kind of like make up for um, that gain in incremental fan engagement in those specific games is actually larger than it probably intuitively feels for people. Oh, there's a bump in the improvement of excitement. But when you strip away 20% 
of the games to do that, you're you're losing a lot. I, I want to interject for just a minute with free food offers, uh, and then we'll get right back to the conversation. The latest HelloFresh promo I have gets you 12 free meals at HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. Then enter the promo code ThinkingBasketball12. If you don't know yet, uh, sometimes I get more excited about HelloFresh than I do basketball uh, because not only is it easy and convenient, but it's really fun assembling the meals. And now that I'm reading this, I'm getting a, a craving for that poblano black bean quesadilla situation they have. Um, I like to go crazy and throw some creme fraiche on it if I have any in the fridge. That's sour cream's fattier cousin, creme fraiche. Um, anyway, they have over 25 recipes a week. They're really quick to assemble. Um, one study has HelloFresh as 28% cheaper than buying at the grocery store. So it makes sense they are America's number one meal kit. And you can get 12 free meals right now at HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. Drop in the promo code ThinkingBasketball12. And when you use that, you support the show. Okay, now that I'm hungry, let's get back to the conversation. Let's jump back to the Encore product. Because sure. I have, as, as a historian, I have a lot of um, sort of thoughts and interest in how much offense is too much offense. And right, we've seen a lot of offense lately. And there are certainly a lot of rule changes over the years that have supported that offense, along with, of course, uh, strategy and on-court analytics-based stuff. But I think right now, as of this conference, we're at about 112 points per 100 for the league average offensive rating, which is again, another record, breaking the record from last year, from the year before, and on and on and on. So let me stop there and just start with the high-level question. How much offense is too much offense from your standpoint? I, well, I could throw it back to you. I mean, I, I, assume, I assume every fan has a different answer to that question. Um, so I, I'd be curious for yours. Um, are, I was are, we, more, are we there? Are we at too much offense in your view? Maybe a little bit. I don't, I actually, for me personally, I don't know if I would frame the question um, in a vacuum. It's more about the advantages that the offense and defense are having as they yeah. pertain to on-court entertainment or flow state. So the yep. one that always comes up is the um, shooters getting rewards that other players on the court don't get, whether that's landing space or, you know, jumping into a defender or things like that. And in conjunction with other rules, that didn't used to be sort of um, benefited or given to the offense 20 years ago that are now happening now. I think that's the space that I'm kind of asking about. Is Got that, yeah. is, no, is that, that, that never ending? That, that's fair, right? So I, I, I was just, just curious. The reason I asked that is because um, it is sort of a very individualized question, right? So I, I, I may have a, a personal view about the level of offense in the league. If you ask our fans, and we do not surprisingly, extensive fan surveying. And we've even done dial testing, right? Where fans are literally sitting watching games with a kind of a dial like you might see during a political debate and turning it up or down based on whether they enjoy what they're seeing. Um, the, the overwhelming response uh, in all of that research is that fans like the high score. Now, that doesn't mean that that's universal. There are certainly those on the other side of that, but the ratio is very high. And it also doesn't mean that there's not some theoretical future state where it's going to cross a threshold where that is no longer the case, right? But at least kind of where we are now, however you ask the question, do you like the number of threes? Do you like the high scoring? Uh, do you think the game's in a better place now than it was five years ago? All of those come back with these overwhelmingly positive ratios. 
I, I think my view is first, I think it gets overstated how much we've legislated uh, offense, right? So there was there was a package of rule changes back in you know 2001, the Colangelo committee, when the game had gotten bogged down, obviously this was long before my time with the league, but the, it was a sort of very, you know, knockdown drag out type, type basketball. And so the decisions around freedom of movement and opening up the lane and illegal defense and all these things to, to try to allow for more offensive movement, free, you know, freedom of movement, motion, et cetera. And that worked, right? And, and, and it sort of set a spark in motion to, to kind of lead to this offensive explosion we've seen, but there hasn't been anything sort of fundamentally transformational since then. And a lot of it, the things we've done as a league are not actually driven at uh, increasing scoring or increasing offense, right? What we've focused on is A, enforcing the things that are already in the rule book, right? Some of which were put in in, in the early 2000s from a freedom of movement perspective and others around uh, actually reducing injury risk and injury rates. And that appears to be sort of benefiting offense, but the, the landing space for shooters, that was very much, again, back from a, a data perspective, we were seeing a higher rate of injuries, specifically, you know, ankle and, and knee injuries when, when players were landing, shooters were landing on defensive players' feet. And so creating uh, more space for shooters to land, uh, the, the possibility of a flagrant foul when a defender, you know, closes out and steps under a shooter, those things were from a player protection standpoint, which of course, in turn, just helps shooters because it means you can't close out as aggressively, you can't cut under a shooter. And so now they've got more space. But I think that what you hit on is, is actually the much bigger piece here. It's this strategy piece, right? That teams have found where efficient shots are on the floor. Effective field goal percentage is also not surprisingly at an all-time high. Teams understand that three-pointers plays the basket. I'm obviously, you know, preaching to the choir here, but, but those things are where you can score efficiently. But the other thing is, offenses figured out how to take advantage of the things that were already in the rule book. That if you see a defender in an illegal guarding position, you can generate contact and it's still the responsibility of the defender because they were in the illegal guarding position. So that's jumping into a, 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 a shoot, a, excuse me, a shooter jumping into a defender you've drawn into the air or on a drive to the basket, you know, seeing a, a defender either inside the restrict or a secondary defender inside the restricted area or not, you know, jumping A to B and, and creating that contact, that is still a defensive foul by rule. And our teams and players have just gotten so much better at exploiting that to their advantage on the offensive side of the ball. And personally, I agree with you. I think we're at the point where we need to start to figure out how we can bring some balance back to that equation mostly so that the offensive players don't feel the incentive to do that because it's not that we necessarily want less offense or want, you know, the defense to be able to be more aggressive. But the issue for us is does that actually decrease the aesthetic um, quality of the game, right? To, to me, yes. Like if, a, if an offensive player is junking up the game by jumping sideways while shooting or, you know, sort of bowling ball driving to the lane and creating contact, that's not great for our game. But then the question is, okay, so how do you, how would you legislate against that, right? Do you want to move to a world where referees have much more subjective judgment about what is or isn't a natural basketball motion and therefore reward the, the, the offensive player with a, with a defensive foul call on a play, right? We've, we've worked really, really hard to make our rules more black and white over time so we can be more transparent about correct and incorrect calls. And trying to undo that is actually really, really difficult because now you're relying on 70 individual referees to make subjective judgments about whether something was a natural basketball move or not. And so we've sort of defaulted to, look, if you, a defender, are in an illegal guarding position, whether that's on the perimeter or around the basket, 
you are liable for the contact that, that is created, even if it's created by the offense. And so that's the challenge we have. But, but yes, my personal view is that there's, there's a better balance that we could find probably. Yeah. And, and I think maybe for the, for the purpose of our conversation here, our, our own subjective views are less of what I'm getting at than yeah. the things you're seeing from fans. I mean, if you're having fans sitting there turning up a dial on games, at least anecdotally, it seems from Twitter or um, I've actually tried to, run surveys with fans myself on this in the past, those little moments where they sense something isn't a basketball play, for yep. instance, right? And then you have the double whammy of you have the break in the game, you have to go to replay, we can get to replay more in a minute, um, right? You have all these things that maybe are compounding. And I think you, you made a great point. I'm asking less about teams being able to take advantage of space or shoot threes really well. Those things spiking up offense organically um, doesn't seem to cause a lot of uh, uproar from fans. I think it's more of the, and let's stick with this phrase, like what's an organic basketball play. And I'm glad you mentioned rigidity because it feels like to me, sometimes maybe if you actually only use really rigid boundaries in a game that needs some flexibility, you can kind of walk yourself into a corner. So that's maybe where I'm wondering if we've, we've landed on. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that the pendulum will start to swing back and say, look, basketball is by definition a game of, um, of some subjectivity in officiating and that, it, that not every call on every play can be a black and white call and we have to get comfortable with the gray area if, if we want to clean up some of the things that you're talking about. Um, and I would just say like, you know, to, to build on one of the things you hit on, when you, when you look at... Um, uh, you know, contact and, and, and how we officiate at different parts of the floor, right? What is a foul around the basket and the pain in the post is very different than what is a foul on the perimeter, but that's, that's rules-based, right? So like, if you, if you wanted to start to tilt the equation as to actually get at the efficiency of those shots, if you wanted to make three pointers less efficient to, to try to cut down on the number of them, well, you could allow more contact on the perimeter, right? You could reduce freedom of movement, bring back hand checking. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a lot of things you could do there to sort of uh, reduce the gap in, in expected points at different points on the floor. Obviously, plays at the basket are still very, very efficient and would become even more so on a relative basis if you officiate out on the perimeter more, um, you know, more strictly. But th those are the types of things we think about. And to your point about the, the, the dial testing, like, yeah, fans absolutely say that they don't like that, right? That, that, when you see those sort of unnatural basketball moves, that's not an enjoyable aspect for fans. However, a point that often also gets overlooked is we are at a historical low in, in the entirety of the NBA in terms of fouls, foul calls per game right, and free throw shot. So despite this massive offensive boom, despite these so-called unnatural moves leading to more, more calls, we don't have more calls in our game, right? And a lot of the reason for that is because the places where most calls happen, right, in the post, um, you know, cutting, et cetera. Like we have less of it. We have more freedom of movement. We have more space. We have less post play. And so you're seeing fewer foul calls, which is great because not surprisingly, fans also don't like fouls and free throws, right? They, they, anything that's a stoppage in the game, a fan's going to tell you, I'd rather see action. And so there's a lot of interesting dynamics there at play um, that just make you a little more reticent to just say, okay, we're just going to flip this switch and say, we got to tilt it back in favor of defense, or we got to get back to a place of natural basketball motions because, um, you know, it's a delicate balance across a lot of these issues. Where is the data? Where are you guys currently at on something like free throws? Um, there's been discussion of, you know, switching to a single free throw instead of two free throws. A any insight on an issue like that 
Uh, yeah. I mean, it plugs right into what we're talking about. So, so, uh, so, so anyone, anyone who works with me will tell you that I am on a lifelong mission uh, to eliminate the free throw or eliminate as many free throws as we can. Um, you know, again, fan, fan data is clear there that it's, it's not really an enjoyable part of the game. Um, and we spend roughly 20 minutes administering fouls and free throws in any given NBA game, which is a lot of time uh, in a two hour and 15 minute broadcast. And so uh, we have tested now, this is the second year that we're testing um, the one free throw for two points or one free throw for three points in the G League. And so in all foul instances in the G League prior to the last two minutes, uh, teams only shoot one free throw. And if it was a shooting foul for two points, shooting foul for three points or a foul in the bonus, it's just one, one shot and you're in, we're in the, the same number of points. We saw free throw percentages go down a tiny bit, which makes sense because historically players shoot about 5% better on their second free throws than their first. And so you're taking away that second free throw opportunity. Um, and we saved quite a bit of time. Interestingly, uh, not as much time as we had projected. And the, the two reasons for that, and this is why we have the G League and why we'd love to be able to use it as an R&D lab, two things happen. One is... Uh, we didn't properly account for the substitution time. So right now, foul occurs, there's two free throws coming, substitutions are done between the first and second free throw. And so coaches have that first free throw time to prepare to send in their sub, right? Now, with only one free throw shot, the subs have to be done before that free throw in the G. And so coaches are taking a little more time to get that substitute ready into the bench and to the, the table to check in. So that actually cut down on the time saved. And also there's a sense that players uh, felt the, the shorter time for the, the overall free throw process. Mm -hmm. And given the expectation that they've all had their whole careers of, you know, catching their breath during that free throw break, they lined up slower, right? They just took more time to get through the free throw process because they're like, well, I'm not going to have another 30 seconds after this first free throw to catch my breath before the next one. So you saw a slower process there. So it, that was interesting learning, right? And so we'll keep testing it there. But if, if we can prove with that G League data that, that two things happen, one, you actually do cut down on the, the stoppage time consistently, and two, that's something that, that fans find beneficial, right? And, and you haven't upended the competitive side of it, because in theory, it's the same expected points. That's a change that I, I would hope you could see in the NBA at some point, although I will tell you basketball traditionalists are very much against it. So it's not like we're on the cusp of that, of that change, but uh, getting it to G League is at least the, the first necessary step. Well, well, you mentioned something that I think is basically paramount to change it in game flow, especially in today's league where players are moving and running and cutting maybe more and harder than ever, um, which is that natural rhythm and break period that's built in to this like two hour long cardiovascular activity, right? And yep. so the free throw is actually, I think, only one of those examples. Anytime you guys talk about changing timeout lengths, number of timeouts, um, TV timeouts. This is all part of the rhythm of the game. Uh, any more kind of insight you can share specifically about monitoring players and, uh, you know, wearables gets into HIPAA and all these other things, but what kind of data and information can you use there to kind of strike a balance between improving game flow anytime you're looking at, uh, you know, one of those initiatives versus hey, we can't all of a sudden pull the carpet out from under the players when it comes to the actual athletic performance, that's part of it. Yeah, it, it's a great point. And, uh, you know, we've looked at this a few different ways. So the, the people are often, I think, a little too focused on the length of games, right? Uh, like, like 
people talk about baseball game times, football, you know, we're, we're at around just under 215, I think about 212 this year. And we've kind of bounced up and down. We, we reduced our number of, of timeouts a few years ago, but we think about it much more as flow. And I, I define the flow of the game as the number and length of stoppages. Now, of course, the number and length of stoppages will directly lead to a different game length. I'm not saying those are disconnected, but, but the flow is what is felt by the fans. And so our prior research had showed that the, the sort of, yes, fouls are not great, free throws are not, from a fan perspective, free throws are not great, replays are not great, but by far the worst thing for fans is just a straight up commercial break, right? A, a timeout that leads to a commercial break. And so a typical game used to have uh, a total of 18 potential mandatory and team timeouts, right? And that was cut to a max of 14 a few years ago, which is still a lot, but it's, you know, it's, it's two to three per quarter, typically uh, for an average game. And so uh, what we looked at was, well, what is actually that, that cardio need for breaks? And is that more about the number and frequency of breaks or the length of the breaks? Right. And so we don't have wearables data in game. We don't have cardio data in game, but we did a lot of anecdotal, you know, study with our players that it was much from their perspective, much more about the ability to take the break than the length. And in fact, if you look at, you know, if you watch an in arena camera, you're at a game, um, you know, mandatory timeouts, quarter breaks that might be three, three and a half minutes, a minute before those end, you got players back out on the court in a lot of cases ready to go. Right. And, the, and they're almost sort of standing with hands on hips waiting for action to start. So that sort of signaled to us that the length of these breaks might actually just be more than we need right now. But when we cut down on the number of them, of course, back to the economic piece, we needed to maintain that advertising inventory. And so we actually just redistributed those ads across those breaks. We actually got longer, but, but fewer breaks. So that actually helped from a viewership perspective, but maybe didn't serve the exact purpose from a, a, a sort of player rest and recovery standpoint. So on the wearables front, one thing we did that I think is really important with our, our latest CBA in 2017, we established a wearables committee and that committee has representatives from the players association and from the league. And the focus of that committee was to do three things. One, uh, set up cybersecurity standards for any use of wearable technology, making sure if we're gonna capture wearables data from our players, let's make sure that that, that data is safe and secure. Two was to do validity and, and accuracy studies, right? We don't want to capture data that's not accurate, if it's, especially if it's gonna lead to decisions about the game. And then three was a framework for in-game use. So right now teams are permitted to use approved and, and uh, accurate, meaning deemed accurate by our validation process um, devices during, during practice, but they're not allowed to use them during game. And we've been actively negotiating with the, the players association to look at ways to bring that in game because practices are only one part of the story here. We need, we need to bring the game data in as well. And yeah, we really think that that, not that that data we're going to use sort of on an individual player level, but if it could guide the rules and format, if it could guide um, structure that would reduce injury rates and elongate careers, we think it has tremendous benefit for both players and the league. So there was a, a sort of built-in rest period that's kind of been added over the years, and I'm speaking cheekily to replay, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where you have now, instead of the extra TV timeouts, you get the replay, you're already sort of sighing at me mentioning this, uh, <laughs> this yeah. topic. Um, so I won't push it too hard, but you, you no, did it... talk, you did talk to uh, Bill Shea at the athletic last year. And one thing you mentioned to him about this is potentially chipping the ball um, to maybe help with some more automated calls. We've of course seen that in other 
ball space, ball based sports. That's a, that's a tongue twister. Um, is that something that's on the horizon? Do you, do you just individually see that as a potential panacea to some of these things or is replay and kind of the uncertainty that you're trying to balance in terms of getting a certain number of calls, right? Letting the product flow, but also appeasing fans and teams in terms of fairness. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot there, but Talk yeah, that's, no, that, that's good. This, this is another one where, where my, my personal views diverge from uh, from the marketplace of ideas, I think. So I, I, I tend to think that the cost benefit um, equation or balance at least replay is, is not a favorable one. Um, however, fan research shows very, very clearly that our fans would rather us spend a few extra minutes to ensure we get it right. Uh, as opposed to accepting that some calls will be wrong and getting through the game more quickly. And that, that kind of runs in conflict to some of those other things I mentioned about the research, what makes, which makes it sort of a paradox, right? Like fans say, we don't like the stoppages. We like action. However, if it means wrong calls, I don't want that, right? Now I'm willing to take the stoppage. And so I accept that. And so all that means to me is we got to find ways to do it faster, right? And, and more accurately so that we're not going to replay as frequently and for as long. And so that's what the focus has been the last several years. And we got at that through some ways without technology. So we implemented a, I call it courtside administrator a couple of years ago. So there's now someone sitting at the, the scores table for every game in constant contact with the replay center. And the replay center actually makes some calls and changes directly without consultation with the on-court officials. So for example, um, it used to be that if a player made a, you know, a shot on the perimeter that the referee wasn't sure whether it was a two or a three, they would signal for replay. Now that's being done automatically. So if you know referee calls calls a three, um, uh, replay center has someone dedicated to that game. They're watching it. If they go back and look and say toe was on the line, they go straight to the courtside administrator, and that score just gets changed. It just gets changed at the table at the next at the next stoppage in play, and the referees on court have nothing to do with it. And so that reduced the frequency that referees have to go to replay. But obviously, there's still a lot of plays where they're going, and the introduction of the coach's challenge brought many many more where we now have to go go look. And so that brings us to technology, which really is the only way that you're going to get step function uh, changes in the amount of time it takes to do this. Sure, you could have better communication and microphones and video replays, but if it's a human doing it and there's nine replay angles, like it's still going to take time. And so, yes, we've looked at what, what are the technological options here. You mentioned other sports. We watched very closely as you know, tennis has experimented. Well, they've always had the, the challenge system with Hawkeye, but U.S. Open last year on, on Ash and now Australian Open for the entire tournament uh, had automated automated officiating with no lines people. So we studied that very closely. We've approached it from two different perspectives. One is a chip in the ball. And so uh, we're actually switching ball providers from Spalding to Wilson. So that sort of delayed our timeline a little bit in developing uh, chip balls. But of course, Wilson has an NFL ball with a chip in it. So we're, we're optimistic that we can get there with them as well. Uh, and we're also looking at the, the camera-based systems like a you know, a Hawkeye or Respect or a Noah, these companies that do um, specifically around the basket, the location tracking of the ball. Now, that's not going to, in the short term, help you determine what it is or is not a foul, but some of the replays that, that take the longest for us, the out of bounds, the goaltending, the things, you know, did a ball hit the rim to reset the shot clock, the things that can be definitively determined with either a chip-based chip based solution or a camera-based one, those are the things we think in the short term we could actually implement to significantly cut down. Then you could talk about, is there a longer term path here where we actually use, you know, uh, computer vision, AI, machine learning to determine what is or isn't a foul, what is or isn't a travel to help augment the calls that the referees are making on the court. We're not saying 
pull the referees out, put out robots and officiate the game that way. That's, that's not our reality, right? We're not tennis, but could you speed up those replay processes with some of those, you know, computer vision and AI technologies that can, can start to get at a better understanding of what actually happened in a, a quicker time frame than a, than a human looking at replay. So yeah, we're, we're on all that. It's just obviously a, a fairly slow process to start to develop these algorithms and things and, and put them into play. Um, I just want to check with Megan or Seth, maybe if we want to leave a few minutes here, this might be a good time to switch to Q&A um, from the audience, but I, I can keep going, Evan, on this um, for a while. So let me... Uh... Whatever, whatever Megan and the, and the others and the crew wants. Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to jump to Q&A if you want now. Ooh, here's an interesting one. Uh, we, we didn't really get into draft structure or changing the lottery. You, you mentioned some of the changes recently, of course. Uh, it's from Ethan Carpenter. How can data influence decisions regarding the one and done rule? Yeah, so we, um, we did a, an incredibly in-depth um, quantitative study a few years ago when, when we initiated conversation with the union uh, about changes to the one and done rule. This was, this was, I guess, back in, I want to say 2017 or 18. Um, and, and there's a number of ways to look at that from the amount of information available uh, to teams as it relates to, you know, to high school players and, and whether that's changed now versus when we most recently had, you know, the 18 eligibility rule uh, in the early 2000s, um, how well teams have drafted uh, over time and, and whether uh, draft order is in fact as predictive of um, performance in the league as, as one would think and whether that's gotten better. Um, the, freak, the, the prevalence of uh, one and dones, the increase in the number of one and dones and whether that has changed, uh, you know, the two things, either the, the success of players in their early years in the NBA versus um, the, the draft serving its purpose of, of restocking, you know, underperforming teams. And so the, the tensions that you're talking about there are one, what do you believe the philosophical purpose of the draft is, right? Do, do you want the draft uh, to just be a method by which young players make it into the league? Or do you want it to be um, something by which underperforming teams have access to better talent? And if the latter, then of course, you'd want the most information available. And so you want to get at, is there a significant amount of information being gleaned from that one additional, you know, the 19 year old year, whether that's in college, overseas, G League, et cetera. And that was a big, a big research study for us. And then the other piece of it is um, what actually benefits the league. So if there's a true superstar, a transformational player, well, we'd actually rather get that player in the league a year early because that will mean more time for that player as an NBA player. Now, interestingly, it doesn't mean that you'll get an average of one year longer for that player because there's something to be said for the wear and tear of that NBA year relative to a college year. Maybe you only get half a year on average, but that's still half a year. We'll take it. But on the other hand, the, the more influx you have of these, those young players, many of whom aren't ready to step into a rotation right away, maybe the overall lower quality product you've got because teams feel compelled to draft those players on potential, which they, they probably should. But in the near, in the short term, that's actually maybe hurting the product. And so there's a lot of moving pieces there. And, and basically what we did is just provide a sort of huge fact base of information around readiness to play information glean from that one year of college career length injury rates all these things about 18 and 19 year olds uh, and fed that to you know our, our legal team that was that was you know actively negotiating with the pa at the time about whether to change that rule and of course we've sort of put a pin in that for now but but 
we'll definitely come back to it at some point with the PA and, and figure out what makes sense, especially in light of all the, the changes in the marketplace you're seeing recently, right? We've, we've launched our G League Ignite team, which is a, a new option for, for 19-year-old players and what would have otherwise been their, their college freshman year. And we saw quite a bit of uptake among top players for this year. You've seen a lot of players going international. So there's just a lot of changes that might make us look at it again, but data is absolutely at the core of, of that decision. Uh, maybe a, a quick one from Peter Z. He asked, have there been any early returns on this season's baseball-like home-and-home series that have been going on? And can we expect to see more of those in future seasons based on that? Yeah, we, I mean, early returns are that they're just not that impactful, right? Like the, the, there's been a lot of third-party studies. No, no material difference in the you know, home team winning percentage in the second one of those relative to what it would have been if that game had been played later in the season. Um, you know, teams have mixed views. Some like it from a travel and, and sort of basketball planning perspective. Some don't like it because it actually, um, you know, they, they, they sort of like to be able to play against more diverse styles, especially our top teams to, to prepare, you know, over the course of a season. So we've gotten mixed reviews. The, the, the sole purpose of it in this year was to reduce travel because travel was perceived to potentially increase, you know, our, our exposure risks in this, in this season. So it'll just be a question of whether that travel reduction uh, is beneficial in the future. The one key difference in the future and the reason that it wasn't as much of a problem to go there this year is there's historically been a view that uh, especially for, let's say a non a non star laden team that having the same team for consecutive games in your home market is actually going to be a, a ticket sales challenge. Um, and so without naming team names, if you've got some lower tier team coming in, you know, for two straight games, can you attract your season ticket holders and your individual buyers to that second game? We didn't have to worry about this, th that this year because of the limited fans. So our team business folks may push back a bit in the future that like, actually we like more diversity of teams coming in. Um, but if the basketball and travel benefits outweigh that, it's certainly something we'll consider for the future. Uh, Sebastian K, if we are allowed to ask questions, which we are, um, I'm wondering if the NBA is looking at other leagues around the world for ideas or insights, and if so, which ones? Uh, yes, uh, we, we would, I think it'd be malpractice if we were not. Uh, so I've, I've obviously talked about the, the tennis example. Um, you know, my other favorite one is, is sort of these, um, you know, these secondary cups, right. That, that whether you have 82 games, 72 games, or some, some fewer, lower number, it's still a long season, right. A, nor a normal calendar starts in October and culminates in, in June with a crowning of a champion in our finals. Is there more we can do to create opportunity for teams to celebrate something for fans to celebrate. And so we look to, you know, the European soccer, European basketball, where there's the domestic league, there's a champions league, there's domestic cups, which bring in other teams into the fold for knockout tournaments. So trying to cater a little bit to those international fans as well, that we're trying to build. Can we add ideas like that to the mix? Now we know that that's not going to be a success in year one, because our teams just aren't, and our fans aren't um, primed to focus on, you know, the, the secondary cup that we would host, but can you build it so that by year five or year 10, it actually holds, maybe not as much prestige, but, you know, relatively high prestige to the, to the Larry O'Brien, for example. All right. I think we are out of time. Unfortunately, I feel like I could riff on these all day, but uh, Evan, thank you so much. That was uh, a lot to pack in, in, in only 44 and a half minutes. So spoke quickly uh, for you, Ben. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Remember, you can get those 12 free meals at HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12 with the promo code ThinkingBasketball12. That is a great way to support the show and satiate your appetite if you're hungry. Um, 
to support more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We've got extra content there, uh, historical stuff. Sometimes there are videos that don't make it on YouTube, things like that. Uh, Discord community where we have a monthly live Q&A. Those are getting kind of more exciting and more fun over the months uh, as we've gone forward with that. So patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Oh, you you get to do uh, fun stuff like submit questions to Evan Wash or other guests that we have on sometimes if I know they're going to be on in advance. Uh, A lot of Patreon subscriber questions helped go into sort of building that conversation with Evan. So, So that's another cool perk. Hope that you enjoyed this one. I really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with Evan. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. And as always, with all the craziness going on in the world these days, I hope that wherever you're listening, you are having a great day.